chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, and I'm going to read and preach verses 1 through 4 this morning, which are about loving one another when we disagree with one another, as I said before. I think it's impossible for us to be in the same church together without disagreeing with each other from time to time for two reasons. First of all, because we're different. We're different people. We're not, we're not the same. We have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. We have different personalities. We have different uh, uh, just approaches to life. Second of all, we have disagreements because we're sinners. We all have character flaws. We all are works in progress. None of us have arrived. We, we aren't fully sanctified yet. And for those two reasons, because we're different and because we're sinners, when we seek to do life together in the body of Christ, when we rub shoulders with each other as fellow members of the same church, we're gonna have disagreements with each other from time to time. And therefore, in light of that reality, we want to know, we want to learn together how to love each other when we disagree. Most of us don't particularly like disagreements because of the relational tension that they create, because of the relational and emotional energy and investment they require to resolve, and because they're just not pleasant. They can be hard, they can be difficult, they can be draining. But God's word gives us everything we need to love each other when we disagree with each other. And God's spirit, working in our hearts by his word, can empower us and equip us to love each other well in the midst of those inevitable disagreements. And these verses before us this morning, they are given to us for that very purpose to help us learn how to love each other when we disagree. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word and then we'll give our attention to it together. Let's pray. Lord, you know our tendency to respond poorly when we disagree with each other. We do struggle with the same things the Christians in Rome struggled with in these verses long ago. And we recognize that we need your help. We need the correction and also the instruction that comes to us in these verses. And we need the grace of Christ in order to receive it, in order to take it into our hearts and to apply it to our lives. So would you give us the grace we need this morning in great abundance and use this passage Use it by the power of your spirit to make us more and more a church where we truly love each other, genuinely, earnestly, even when we disagree with each other. And may our unity in Christ be a great encouragement to us this morning and also help us bear a compelling witness to the gospel to the unbelievers around us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 14, reading verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. As you can see in your sermon notes there, we're going to look first at the weak and the strong in verses 1 and 2, and then welcome instead of judgment in verses 3 and 4. And kids, don't forget the key words for kids there at the top of the bulletin. You can listen for those words while you listen to the sermon. So first, the weak and the strong. Look again at verse 1 with me. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're going to talk about the second half of that verse under our second main point, but for now we're going to consider what Paul means by the weak and the strong. As for the one who is weak in faith, what does he mean by that, weak in faith? Well, there's a sense in which, and maybe this is where your mind goes first, we are all weak in faith, aren't we? There's a sense in which that's true. When we read those famous words in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief, we relate to those words. Those words resonate in us because we know that we have unbelief in our hearts too. We do believe in Christ, but it's not like our hearts are 100% belief and 0% unbelief. Now, we're more of a mixture. We, we know this about ourselves. Uh, like a chunk of gold mined from a mountain. It's not just solid gold. It is gold, but it's got a lot of other things mixed in, other rocks and imperfections. Our hearts are like that. There's belief in our hearts, but many imperfections of unbelief remain. So sometimes our faith is weak in that sense. And let me just say, if that's where you are this morning as you come into worship, you you feel like your faith is weak, let me encourage you with this truth. Weak faith unites you to Jesus Christ just as much as strong faith. Just as much as strong faith does. The strength of our faith is actually not the most important thing. The object of our faith is. It's not how strong your faith is that matters most, it's who your faith is in. Author Kevin DeYoung writes, it is the object of our faith that matters. If you venture out onto a frozen pond, so kids you can consider this or think about this in the winter time when it's frozen over. If you venture out onto a frozen pond, it isn't your faith that keeps you from crashing into the water. True, it takes faith to step out onto the frozen pond, but it's the object of your faith, the 12 inches of ice, that keeps you safe. And then he says this, believe in Christ with all your heart, but don't put your faith in your faith. Rest in Christ and not your faith in him. 
So if your faith is weak, it, it is good for you to want for it to be stronger. It is good for you to use the means of grace and to pray that God would make it stronger. But don't forget that weak faith unites you to Jesus just as much as strong faith. If you step out onto that ice trembling, it's gonna hold you just as much as if you strode out onto it without fear. So don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ. Lean your whole weight out onto Christ this morning and he will hold you fast. But is that really what Paul's talking about here when he mentions those who are, quote, weak in faith? Well, I think it's part of what he's talking about, but I also think there's something more specific here. And I think this is where verse two helps us. Look at verse two. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So what do we know about the weak person so far? The weak person is weak in faith, verse one, and the weak person eats only vegetables, verse two. So what's going on here? Well, the issue Paul's addressing obviously has to do with food, and the weak in faith, it seems, were primarily Jewish Christians who were still observing the Old Testament food laws. And in order to avoid the different kinds of meat that were considered unclean, they chose to avoid meat altogether and to eat only vegetables, sort of like Daniel and his friends did in the book of Daniel. Whereas the strong in faith, who in this case were primarily Gentile believers, believed they could eat anything. It was okay to eat anything. Since the Old Testament food laws were fulfilled in Christ, who declared all foods clean now. So the weak in faith ate only vegetables so they could avoid unclean meats, while the strong in faith ate everything, or they could eat anything, because everything was now clean after the coming of Christ. And Paul actually goes on to say that the strong in faith are correct on this particular issue. That's why he calls them strong in faith, He says later in the chapter, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And then later he says, everything is indeed clean. So the weak in faith just hadn't pieced that together yet. They hadn't fully understood the implications of the coming of the Messiah for those food laws, for those aspects of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. They were still coming to grips with what that meant. And in that sense, they were weak in faith. Weak in their beliefs, as it were. This was a weak point in their belief system. But it's important to understand that it wasn't at the core of their belief system. This is an important point to grasp. They did not think you had to observe the food laws in order to be saved that was the case in Galatians, if you remember the book of Galatians and the issue there. Uh, The believers that Paul was writing to in Galatians, there were false teachers among them who were saying that you had to be circumcised, you had to follow these food laws in order to be saved. That was an error at the core, at the heart. 
And therefore, Paul had something very different to say to the Galatians. He spoke directly to that error. He sought to correct it right away. But here, the error wasn't at the core. It was sort of on the outer edges of the belief system. So it was still an error. It was a weakness, but it was one that called for patience and forbearance and gentle instruction not the kind of direct and urgent approach that we see in the book of Galatians. And it was the case there that the gospel was at stake. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, was at stake there. And so it was handled differently. So again, the weak in faith ate only vegetables so they could avoid unclean meats. But the strong in faith ate everything because everything was now clean after the coming of Christ. And you could see how this would be an issue in the church in Rome, even though it's not an issue in our day, this particular matter. Uh, They disagreed over what foods were okay to eat, so imagine them trying to have a fifth Sunday lunch together. This problem was affecting their unity. This disagreement was divisive. That's why Paul devotes a whole chapter and then some to this issue, because he wants them and he wants us to know how to have disagreements with each other and yet still love one another with the love of Christ. What disagreements do we have here in our church? Well, we disagree sometimes about politics, don't we? Even though we may agree about important issues the Bible addresses like abortion or racism, homosexuality, poverty, and so on. We sometimes disagree on what is the best way for those issues to be addressed politically. We disagree sometimes about schooling options for our kids. Should it be public school? Should it be private school? Should it be homeschool? We disagree sometimes about baptism and who should be baptized. We disagree sometimes about the Sabbath and what we should or shouldn't do on the Lord's Day. We disagree sometimes about the church calendar and how to think about holidays like Christmas and Easter. We disagree sometimes about vaccines and masks and mandates. We even disagree sometimes about what makes for a good sermon or a bad sermon. I'm sure you could add to that list of disagreements we do have sometimes in our church. Like I said at the beginning, we're we're bound to have these disagreements because we're different and because we're sinners. But God's word and God's grace give us everything we need to love each other despite our disagreements so that our unity in Christ can hold together for the sake of our fellowship and our witness. So we may have disagreements at times, but we need to remember that as Christians, what unites us is always greater than what divides us or what seeks to divide us because Christ is greater than all and we are all united to Christ. Well, like I said, we want to learn to love each other despite our disagreements and that's what our second main point is all about, welcome instead of judgment. Let's look at that now together. Before we look at verses three and four, there are actually two things Paul mentions in verse one related to this. So look again at verse one. Paul writes, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, 
but not to quarrel over opinions. We're gonna think about welcome and about quarreling. Paul's addressing the strong in faith here and he tells them first to welcome the weak in faith. Welcome him, that is receive him as a brother in Christ, receive her as a sister in Christ, even though you disagree on this particular secondary issue. Accept him, don't reject him because of his views. Include him, don't avoid him. Welcome him as a brother in Christ. Don't be like a body that rejects a donated organ and attacks it because it's a foreign object. Receive each other as being part of the body. Welcome each other as part of the body of Christ. Now just thinking about this for a minute or two here, I think there are several ways we can do this here in our church. You could perhaps think of other ways as well. Let me mention four briefly. Four ways we can welcome each other despite our differences. Number one, we can greet each other warmly. Greet each other warmly. Sounds very very basic, very simple, and it is, uh, but it's, it's also significant. I think you do this well as a church, very well, by God's grace, so keep it up. If you need to be challenged on this, however, be challenged on this. Don't walk from your car to your seat and then back to your car at the end with horse blinders on Uh, smile at one another, greet one another, engage with each other, say hello to each other, see how you can help one another. Greet each other warmly. Welcome each other in that simple way. That simple way of loving one another goes a long way. Number two, talk to each other meaningfully. Talk to each other meaningfully. I think it's good for us to be challenged to share with each other what's really going on in our lives and how we can pray for each other, how we can help each other in our lives. Talk about the sermon together and what stood out to you from it. Ask thoughtful questions and listen intently to the answers. Be transparent about your struggles and how the Lord is helping you in the midst of them. Talk to each other meaningfully. J.C. Ryle wrote long ago, let us seek friends that will stir us up about our prayers, our Bible reading, and our employment of time, about our souls, our salvation, and a world to come. So we can greet each other warmly. We can talk to each other meaningfully. Number three, we can host each other regularly. We can host each other regularly. Show hospitality to one another, Paul says in chapter 12. Have each other over for lunch after the morning service or for dinner or dessert after the evening service. Share a meal in each other's homes during the week. Make a habit of hospitality as you're able. That's one of the ways we can welcome each other. Also, visitors who are among us. I think we should work together to make it unusual for there to be more than a handful of Sundays that go by where we don't give or receive an invitation to lunch or dinner or dessert. Wouldn't that be a good thing for us to aspire to? Even if you live kind of far from the church, even if you don't have much, keep it simple so the focus is on the fellowship and the conversation. Host each other regularly. That's one of the ways we can welcome each other. Certainly there will be seasons where that's gonna be difficult or we might not be able to do that and that's okay. But as a normal practice, host each other regularly. Welcome each other 
in that way. And number four, pray for each other habitually. Pray for each other habitually. Certainly we can do this in private. Um, For example, praying through the church directory during our quiet times, it's one way to do that. But I mean by this, praying for each other with each other. So if someone shares a prayer request, why not pause and pray for them on the spot? Might feel a little strange, but hey, we're believers in Christ and the scriptures talk a great deal about prayer and its importance. So pausing and praying for each other, what better way to welcome each other than to pray for and with one another? Each of those things I think will help us to love each other when we disagree with one another. It's not that we don't have disagreements. Again, we do have disagreements, but if we do these things and others, the climate in which we have those disagreements will be healthier, be more oxygen in the air, as it were. Our starting point with each other won't be mistrust and suspicion, but rather a firm foundation of love and trust and mutual appreciation that we can stand on together. So let's welcome each other in these ways. And let's keep in mind also Paul's concluding word in this whole section later in chapter 15 where he says, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Isn't that a great little verse? Uh, Dottie put it on the front of our church directory. It's right there to remind you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the pattern we should follow and also the power we need in order to love each other in these ways is Christ. It's Christ himself and how he has welcomed us in the gospel. We've been welcomed by Christ, therefore let's welcome one another for God's glory. There's a second thing that Paul mentions in verse one though. In addition to welcome, he says, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So the strong in faith should welcome the weak in faith, but not just so they can quarrel with them on their opinions on the issue at hand. So don't invite someone over to lunch just so you can fight with them about a disagreement you have. That's a bait and switch. The bait is lunch. The switch is you actually just want to argue with them. Don't quarrel with each other. Don't fight with each other. Don't make people feel like every interaction they have with you is going to end up in the same place with you trying to argue them over to your side. It's not that we can't discuss issues. Don't misunderstand me. It's not that we can't debate issues at times. Make arguments. It's that we shouldn't be argumentative. We shouldn't be quarrelsome. And I think we should all humbly remember the convicting words of James chapter four, verses one and two. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, what causes quarrels is not the other guy. It's your passions that are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I once read uh, author David Pallison, just a very simple but powerful line. He said, cravings underlie conflicts. Cravings underlie conflicts. If there's a conflict, there's usually a craving that's fueling that conflict. An idolatrous desire to be right, perhaps. An idolatrous desire to be in control of the situation or to be approved and to be well thought of by the other person, whatever the case may be. So in the midst of conflict, one of the ways we can love each other is to pause and examine our own hearts and see if there's a craving, an idolatrous desire that's motivating our words and our actions. So we're to welcome each other. We're not to quarrel with each other. And then Paul gives us two more in verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. That's the first one. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's the second one. So the one who eats, the strong in faith, shouldn't despise the one who abstains, the weak in faith. And the weak in faith shouldn't pass judgment on the strong in faith. For God has welcomed the strong in faith in his decision to eat meat since all foods are now clean. We shouldn't despise each other. We shouldn't deride each other. We shouldn't treat each other with contempt or disdain in the body of Christ. If we despise anyone God loves and Christ bought and the Holy Spirit indwells, we have a problem. And the problem isn't in God or in them, it's in us. And we should repent of our sin and ask God for a change in heart. God, give me a change in heart toward the brother or sister we've been despising. We also shouldn't pass judgment on each other because that's really taking the place of God. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, Paul writes. Who are we to pass judgment on each other? We're not the master, we're fellow servants. We're not in a position to pass judgment on each other. It is before God that each one of us stands or falls. Only God sits on the bench and wears the robes and holds the gavel, not us. Later in James 4, verses 11 and 12, we read, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Verse four again in our passage, 
along similar lines, says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And then notice this line at the end. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Just think about that for a minute. It is the Lord who upholds us as believers. It is the Lord who makes us stand. We are not able to stand in our own strength, but he is able to uphold us and make us stand. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1, 6, a famous verse on this that perhaps is coming to your mind. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Remember the verses towards the end of Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the same those throughout. Jude 24 and 25, at the very end, that little letter. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We will be upheld for the Lord is able to make us stand. Our hope and our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in the Lord. We will persevere to the end because the Lord will preserve us to the end. He will make sure we make it all the way home. That's a great source of comfort, great source of contentment for us as believers. So how do we love each other when we disagree with each other? Well, among other things in other parts of the Bible, we learn here in these verses that we welcome each other. We welcome each other by greeting each other warmly, as I suggested, talking to each other meaningfully, hosting each other regularly, praying for each other habitually. We welcome each other. We don't quarrel with each other. We don't despise one another. And we don't pass judgment on each other. And we don't pass judgment on each other because we're not the master. We're all servants. Servants of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who will uphold us and make us stand. Last thought. When we have disagreements with each other I think the very best thing we can do is to treat each other the way God has treated us in the gospel God has welcomed us by grace by sheer grace through faith in Christ 
We deserve to be rejected because of our many sins against him. But in Christ, through Christ, we've been welcomed by God. God has not quarreled with us, though we've given him every reason to quarrel, as it were. Every time we sin, every time we rebel against him and go our own way, we give him reason to quarrel with us, but he has not quarreled with us. He has reconciled us to himself through the death of his own son. God has not despised us. He has loved us. He has been merciful to us. He has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God has not passed judgment on us. Instead, he has passed judgment on his son in our place. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, is what we sing. And in doing all these things, God has changed our hearts. He's made us new. And he has shown us the way we should treat each other. So by God's grace, let's treat each other the way God has treated us in the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great mercy and grace that you have shown us in the gospel of your Son, our Savior, and our Lord. And we thank you for this portion of your word that tells us how to love each other when we disagree. We pray that you would give us grace to welcome each other, not to quarrel or despise or pass judgment on each other, but instead to treat each other the way you have treated us, by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.